uh, thank you for inviting me to speak to this forum. Uh, always a pleasure to speak to those who believe in classical liberalism, liberal economic thought, and so great, great pleasure to be here. Uh, of course, these are extraordinary times, uh, and uh, which is why we are all interacting over uh, Zoom these days much more than in person. Or, but 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 in many ways, this is also a great way to connect with people all over the country. Because usually, when I speak, I go to you know a particular college or university or an institution which is in one place. And but this is a great forum to connect with a whole range of people from you know everywhere. So great to be here. It's interesting this. Uh, Forum is Swatantrata, which is freedom, and I've always been amazed by how uh, proudly and passionately Indians uh, hold their freedom, uh, and you know the way we celebrate our freedom, uh, uh, political freedom. That is, uh, every 15th August or any other occasion, we are always very proud of our political freedoms. Uh, somehow, we've never had that same passion for economic freedom, uh, and so it was an interest that I noted that during this. COVID time, the government, the prime minister came out and, you know, before his economic package, he exhorted uh, the call to Atma Nirbhar Bharat, uh, which itself is an interesting phrase, uh, which translated into English as self-reliant India, really, as closed up. Uh, and I was uh, wondering what it, what it really meant, uh, because self Atma Nirbhar at one level can mean what we were trying to do from 1947 to 1991, I mean, look inside, uh, you know, put, put higher tariff walls, trade walls, and try and build India behind barriers. That didn't work. Another definition of Atmanirbhar Bharat that came to mind was the Gandhian definition, uh, which was, you know, that India should be a whole republic of small villages, which are sort of self-reliant and self-sufficient in their own way. But then I tried to, because my natural inclination, thought inclination is towards Swatantrata, really, uh, and, you know, freedom. And I thought about, and I wrote this uh, in the Economic Times yesterday, and some of you can read that later. I won't go into too much detail. But, you know, uh, Atma Nirbhata is an interesting concept which can be linked with freedom and Swatantrata as well. And I think if you talk not so much about Atma Nirbhata Bharat, but if you start talking about an Atma Nirbhata Bharatiya, that is a self reliant Indian more than self reliant India, then I think you get a nice marriage of uh, what the government is trying to do right now and what. All of us on the classical liberal side or on the free market side of economic thinking want, want to do. Because ultimately, the goal, I think, for India and for all the young people and everybody else, the poor people, is that we need to uh, become prosperous. And I think the best way and the only way to prosperity is through a greater role for the markets and a smaller role for the state. And in effect, what has to this requires a, the government to step out of the several economic activities it continues to dabble in. And I will talk about those uh, because I'm talking about structural reform today. But it also de depends on all of us, uh, all of us citizens also getting out of the embrace. Because I think in India, again, historically, perhaps it's because of the way the system has been that the government is kind of this my bab, you know, father figure, mother figure, whatever you want to call it. And we, all of us in many ways, depend on the government and expect the government to do certain things for us. So I think it's both ways. So if we demand, uh, not only public goods and services, so every government has to do law and order and foreign policy and security. That is a given, even in classical liberal theory. But, you know, once we start wanting more, uh, which are, a lot of them are private goods, actually, whether, you know, it's LED or gas cylinders and so on. These are not traditionally what we call public goods. But nevertheless, uh, all of us want more and more from the government. And uh, that, that is also a problem because then the government responds and says, look, it's the people who want it. So therefore, we are going to enter the economic activity. And the fact is that the more you want from the government, the more you'll be taxed because somebody's got to pay for it. So eventually, we should also remember that whatever the government does comes at a price. And eventually, somebody has to pay that price. And the price is paid by all of us uh, in the end, one way or the other. So I thought uh, that was interesting. You can read um, that article and how to, how, again, COVID provides an opportunity uh, in this moment of great crisis, we've seen so many poor people, poor migrants walking on the streets and ordinary Indians, other Indians coming to help them because the government was unable to because of its capacity constraints and so on. So maybe maybe this is a time where we can realize that government has its limitations. Uh, even with the best of intentions, it can have its limitations. And therefore, we should try and aspire to a system uh, which is different. And our expectations from government should be different. Uh, we should rely on it to deliver a structural reform 
and the poor should rely on it to give it a direct transfer and income transfer or income support uh, and access uh, support more than you know giving them goodies or uh, free free freebies which doesn't really bring prosperity it it, it only uh, helps with the margin so uh, when i think about covid 19 uh, and structural reforms the first thing that comes to mind is that india always reforms in a crisis uh, you know if you go back to 1991 is obviously the obvious case. We were on the verge of a sovereign default. The government was about to default, and then we kickstarted liberalization. And whatever growth we've achieved since then, 6%, 7%, going up to 9% at some point in the 2000s, on the back of you know that that particular liberalization, which happened uh, after a crisis uh, uh, in 1991. But it's not only 1991. You know, in the 1960s, uh, there was a severe food crisis in India. You know, India had to import. Uh, food from the U.S. to feed its people, and in response to that, uh, government got sacked together, and we had the Green Revolution. And today we have surplus uh, cereals and food grains, so we have food security, which is something we didn't have for the first 20 years of our independence. But it took an acute crisis uh, by the mid 60s to force us into progressive action. Similarly, a lot of reforms happened. Uh, some of you would know during the Vajpayee Prime Ministership so between 98 and 2004. Again, at the start of that Prime Ministership. There was a nuclear test, uh, which resulted in a lot of sanctions being imposed in Asia, that was on India. That was also the same time that uh, the East Asian crisis happened, uh, which also had its carry-on impact on India's prospects. So I think, again, there were two big hits, but the government again responded to slowing growth by uh, carrying out a number of significant uh, economic reforms, including disinvestment. Uh, so, so I think, in that sense, uh, a crisis is good for structural reform in India. And if you look at COVID, uh, so all of us were looking at you know the relief package and the economic package largely as either a fiscal stimulus or a monetary stimulus. Because in the crisis, most governments respond with one of those two. So there was monetary stimulus. There was very little or one one and a half percent fiscal stimulus. Significantly more monetary stimulus in terms of you know easy loans and uh, other kind of moratoriums and interest and so on. But the most interesting thing for me was that you got structural reform, which was uh, you know again, goes to prove the point that when India has got its back to the wall, it does a crisis, uh, and it, then it does economic reform. So if you look at the two biggest reforms according to me, which happened in this spate, a lot of uh, in spate of announcements that the FM made, was the abolition of the APMC, that's Agricultural Produce Marketing Committee Act and the Essential Commodities Act, the two, two fundamental reforms in agriculture. And why do I say these are significant structural reforms? Because agriculture is one sector which has not really been touched by uh, any kind of market reform, even after 1990, we've, we've opened up manufacturing to some extent, we've done services to a very large extent, but agriculture somehow was considered a no-go area, though it can still supports, even though it contributes only 13% to 14% of GDP, it still supports more than 40% of our workforce. So it was really surprising that agriculture was never the subject for uh, market reform. And then COVID comes and suddenly you get you know, the government willing to say that we will supersede the APMC. With, so APMC forces farmers to sell at only designated Monday. Uh, and the FM, interestingly, when she announced this, she gave the explanation that, look, we don't ask any other producer of a good uh, or a service to sell it only at a particular place to a particular person. You can sell your cell phone, you can sell your biscuits, you can sell your cold drinks, you can sell any product to anybody, anywhere. So why should only farmers have to sell it? Which was brilliant logic, but the point is it's got really nothing to do with COVID. I mean, that logic applied uh, all the way since 1947, it applied in 1991, it applied in 1998, it applied in 2014, but it was finally done, uh, or it's finally been announced and the legislation has to still happen, but it was finally announced uh, in the time of crisis. Uh, and of course, it's a, it's a very good reform and it will free up farmers and give farmers access to the market because ultimately, uh, markets are what will deliver even farmers, uh, farmers prosperity. But I was just again uh, very, very interested how this most protected sector of the economy was opened up during COVID uh, 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 with a very radical structural reform, which has never been seen before. So agriculture has always been the so apart from the fact that this APMC will limit where farmer can sell essential commodities immediately, stock limits, so on. Exports in the moment, food price rises. Uh, you ban exports. Every government has done it. Uh, but again, you don't do it for any other commodity, but you do it for agricultural commodity. Now, if prices go up, uh, farmers should get a good price sometimes, right? So uh, 
there may be other ways to compensate uh, consumers or the vulnerable consumers but surely there cannot be a case that uh, farmers should be denied a better price uh, so i think all the policies so far had been denying farmers their the rightful price but suddenly in covid i was very pleasantly surprised that we got this change so crisis certainly is a moment where unexpected things can happen and structural reforms uh, can happen and a little later i'll explain why i think that can happen but essentially uh, among the steps taken and what i mean by structural reform uh, very broadly and this forum would understand it is that you know we move away from a government controlled economy to a more market economy so basically market reform and i think one of the problems in india one of the unfortunate things in india which has happened in terms of narrative over years is that pro market is seen as being pro business but is this not it's not it's not, as i said it's not only about business it's about agriculture it's about uh, all of us as individuals so it's not on, you don't have to be pro business structural reform doesn't mean pro business policy it means pro market policies it means pro competition policies so in fact pro market policies are a check on business as well uh, because businesses if they are not subject to competition also you know, do their own thing and can be harmful uh, in the end so i think we must learn to trust markets let's 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 make the distinction between markets and business and second we must learn to trust prices so the other thing the government loves to do and you'll see it it most recently uh, this week when they've announced all these complicated regulations on airfare government loves setting prices it's very it's a very nice uh, thing to do for the government to try and set a lower price for consumers or try and act in a consumer friendly manner by by uh, by uh, uh, you know putting caps on prices or trying to control price in one way or the other whether in agriculture or pharmaceuticals are capped but in the end all you do with capping prices is uh, you distort signals so farmers whether it's a farmer whether it's a manufacturer everyone looks to price as a signal so if price is going up for example of a particular commodity people will produce more of it if it's going down they'll produce less of it and therefore there will be an equilibrium so prices are an important signal and prices are the best way to allocate resources in the end i mean a government bureaucrat Uh, or for that matter you and i uh, how how do we determine the right price for any commodity whether it's agricultural or manufactured or services i don't know but somehow again we have this great distrust for prices uh, in in our system so i think overall if we want to go into structural reforms and uh, want to make it a reality we have to first understand uh, these things that you need to trust markets and you need to trust uh prices and you need to trust people to be able to work in this system i mean farmers may be poor but they understand markets uh you don't you don't need to be an economist to understand how markets work people on the ground understand how markets work that said i'll i'll talk about five or six largest structural reforms which i think india needs at this point of time as i said governments moved on agriculture but there are the real problem if you ask me in india today uh we talk about jobs we talk about growth the real fundamental problem is that we don't have a strong enough manufacturing base so manufacturing as a percentage of gdp is about 15% and it's largely unchanged for 25 years in fact 30 years ago it might have been marginally higher during the protected uh, era not that it was a good thing but all i'm saying is that we've just not been able to get manufacturing off the ground whatever prosperity we've got whatever jobs we've got has come from services and from informal manufacturing not even formal manufacturing so i think that's really where structural reform needs to come because if you have to there's a lot of talk going on right now that you know we should attract companies from china we can replace china as a factory of the world we can if we do a certain amount of reform so i think fundamentally the first thing i'd like to talk about is factor markets you know, land labor capital these these are key so in 1991 what we did was liberalize product markets to a large extent by bringing down trade barriers by removing industrial licensing but we haven't done much of land labor or capital or not enough uh, of land in fact on land we've gone the other way uh, we had a very old land acquisition law which was amended in 2013 but it's now become impossible uh, to acquire land as a result so on the one side they've made the law very very tough and you have to pay 6x the market price 4x the market price depending on rural area urban area again i would say why is the government or a legislation trying to set the price what is the right price will ultimately be determined uh, in a mutual exchange between the buyer and the seller so i think any reasonable land law has to recognize that right uh, while of course protecting against uh, you know expropriation or you know acquiring land at uh, under market prices which which is my worry but i don't think 
you compensate people getting land at under market prices by overpricing them either. You know, that doesn't work. The, the real problem again, so in India, there's always the theory, which is markets and so on, but the market won't work unless people have clear land titles. So the other thing in India is that we do not at all, most states, except maybe Karnataka, Gujarat, two, three states have digitized land records, but in most places, land titles are not clear. And if land titles are not clear, then people will be reluctant to sell their land because obviously they will not get the uh, they will not get the price because they won't have the title. So I think that is another practical point. So I mean, property rights, assigning the right kind of property rights, is very very critical if you talk about land reform. So any land law, even if you change it, if people are not clear about their property rights, uh, it won't lead to structural reform. So land reform, in my view, has two aspects. One is you change the legislation, uh, make it more liberal, and second, you have to assign property rights very clearly. Now, labor, I think, again, it's a, it's a discussion which has been going on for 25, 30 years on labor laws. And uh, you know, the common refrain you often hear is that India's labor laws actually protect labor from employment. So you, you have a 10% of an organized labor force which is employed, but the rest are all in unorganized sector because of the labor law. So the very laws which are meant to protect labor, which are meant to empower labor, are actually discriminating against labor. And nobody is saying you should abolish all labor laws or suspend labor laws. That's not the right way to do it. Again, you have to amend labor laws in a way that allow markets to function, that allows flexibility. And the government's job is not to set tough labor laws. The government's job is to ensure uh, that there can be that the labor laws remain flexible uh, by uh, ensuring that you know people have social security should they lose a job in terms of cash transfers, or they should have reskilling opportunities. The government needs to do that rather than keep labor laws stringent, which means that only 10% of India can work in the organized sector. And with formal benefits and so on. So I think land, labor, we've not we've not done the right thing. Look, uh, capital is interesting. We've got very good and strong equity markets. Good liberalization has happened. But again, in banking, uh, it's not clear to me why for so many years we've continued to restrict entry. There have been very, I think, two licenses were granted uh, three or four years ago. Before that, another two were granted 10 years before. I mean, in all the years of liberalization we've had, we've probably had seven or eight new banks which I think, again, is, uh, is, is far too little. Uh, again, I think this system of giving licenses needs to change in general. So if you have a licensed sector, uh, for example, like uh, banking is, and the other parallel you can make is with, uh, uh, with higher education, instead of the government having to take applications, calling applications, and then going through them and approving or disapproving, just set out a criteria that, you know, if you meet a, B, C, D criteria, you're entitled to a license to set up a university, to set up a bank, to set up a bank. And then, of course, the government can go and verify whether you know, any of that is happening. But to first ask for it, keep your discretion, that's when systems get distorted. That's, that's when structural reform does not happen. And that's why you get a banking system, uh, which is loaded with NPAs, which is not big enough to give the kind of loans that India needs. I mean, like India... We haven't even seen the best of India yet. You know, we've seen some years of rapid growth, but the best of India and the fastest growth of India is yet to come. And is the banking system fit to fit for purpose? No, it's not. Uh, we were very happy after the 2008 crisis that you know we didn't open up the financial sector, so we are safe. The rest of the world's banks are in trouble. But look where it got us. I mean, it, we still landed up in the NPA problem without any of the advantages of a competitive banking system. India has one of the highest interest rates in the world. RBI cuts rates, banks don't cut rates, there's no transmission. So it's again, it's, a, it's, it's not a proper, it's not a functioning market. And the financial sector is the engine of any economy. You know, the financial sector has to power, is the blood flow, right? If you don't get credit flowing, if you don't get credit flowing at good rates, there's going to be no, not no, but there will, be, there will not be sufficient, uh, uh, you know, economic activity in terms of new, new companies coming up, new uh, uh, services companies, manufacturing companies, even agriculture enterprises coming up. So I think uh, the Indian banking system, capital, capital, which is what I call the third factor market after land, labor, capital, uh, is still very restricted and definitely needs uh, much more opening up. The other, so trade we've done relatively well. Uh, we've reversed a little in recent times, but it's still not a, not a major reversal. And that trade kind of trade reform stays more or less. The fourth area which requires structural reform is public sector companies. So it's incredible that we have about 253 uh, operating uh, public sector companies and out of which I think one third are probably sick or loss making. And you know, they just occupy a lot of them then, for example, Air India or MTNL or BSNL, they all need subsidies to stay afloat. 
and if they need subsidies to stay afloat, of course, they're taking precious taxpayer money for a, for a private uh, venture which doesn't need government. I mean, there's no market failure in aviation. There's no market failure uh, in telecom. There are enough private companies. The only reason the government should step in is if there's a market failure. In none of these sectors, there's any market failure. But the fact that these subsidized companies exist, they distort the market that they operate in, right? So I think that is a problem. It's not only about a taxpayer's money going, but it's about bringing inbuilt, you know, they're giving inbuilt inefficiency to the market in which they are operating. I think the biggest irony of PSUs in India, if you ask me, is, you know, what we call strategic sectors. So like defense for the longest time was reserved for the public sector. Even now, there's Hindustan Aeronautics, which is more or less monopoly over defense aircraft. There's Hindustan Shipyard, which makes the submarine. There's, uh, there's, there's, there's these defense PSUs. Uh, which are supposed to be strategic and only now recently government has opened up to private sector foreign investors and in, in, in this uh, recent announcement they further uh, ease the limit for FDI. But the point is that for all these years you reserved this sector for the public sector because it was strategic and what did you end up getting? India is the largest arms importer in the world. You know, so you have a strategic defense sector reserved for PSUs, but you're buying all your uh, 80% of your weaponry and arms from outside. So how has it served any strategic purpose? The sector has been reserved and all been around for a long time, but you're, it's not being able to produce efficiently. So your army, air force, Navy don't want to buy from your PSUs. They prefer to buy from abroad because those are better. And that's what all of us do. You, you want to buy the best quality goods and services. You want to buy the cheapest quality quality goods and services. I mean, there's nothing irrational about it. And if Indian suppliers, whether it's defense or anything else, can't do it, why should you, uh, why should you pay them? But that, so that's one. And second is like, say, in oil. Again, in oil and coal, coal has now again been liberalized just now after so many years, despite us having the third largest coal reserves in the world, we are a huge importer of coal. Uh, and again, it's because of policies. You reserve coal, oil, a lot of these sectors are dominated by PSUs because they're considered strategic. But in the end, you're importing all your oil from 80% to 90% of your oil from outside. You're importing 10, 20% of your coal from outside. So how is this strategic? I mean, what strategic purpose is it serving the public sector if in the end everything is being imported? Because the whole point was to be Atman Nirbha, right? Or to be self-reliant. But the public sector hasn't delivered you that self-reliance with any efficiency or quality or price competitiveness. So it, it, it hasn't worked. And therefore... And what has happened also is uh, over the years, more and more PSUs have got sick and inefficient. So I think if you don't get out of PSUs now, uh, you know, five or 10 years down the line, uh, all you will have is a lot of sick PSUs which have no value at all. If you get out of them now, you may still get some value. I, I work in Vedanta, as you said in the introduction, and Vedanta owns a couple of uh, PSUs which are divested in the Vajpayee time, Hindustan Zinc was a classic case, which was actually written off more or less by the government. It was on the verge of being a sick PSU. And now it's one of the most efficient zinc companies in the world. A lot of the management is the same. Uh, a lot of the technical people are the same, but the incentives are different. And they're doing, they're doing uh, much better. They have better technology. They have more resources. And I think to keep companies in the public sector is a waste. There's no such thing as strategic. Strategic, for your strategic requirements, what you need is a competitive market. Uh, which will produce efficient goods and services. That's what will serve your strategic purpose, not, not any reservations or any preference to PSU. So I think preference to PSUs need to be done with, done away with, and PSUs need to be divested. So land, labor, capital, PSUs, these are my top four. And the two, the two other very key reforms, particularly for structural reforms, which for manufacturing. One is that India actually charges power, electricity power and electricity sense is a very important input into any business. So India cross-subsidizes farmers and regular consumers like you and me by charging more to industry. In China, they do exactly the opposite. So if you're talking about attracting firms from China, manufacturing firms from China, we can't have a policy which charges, overcharges electricity for industry because in China, they're doing exactly the opposite. They're subsidizing electricity for industry. So if you're as an investor, you're making a hard pole choice about where you'll make more money. And it's clear if somebody is offering you power at one third the price that India is, that's a better destination. Similarly, railway tariff. We cross-subsidize passenger uh, uh, passenger traffic by overcharging on freight. Now, everywhere in the world, freight is the most efficient and cheapest way to move around goods. But in India, because of this perverse policy, 70% of freight moves on trucks, which is not only slower, it's polluting, it's inefficient, uh, and it harms our competitiveness. So if you want to be a competitive nation, 
uh, you have to have power policies, real tariff policies, which are which don't overcharge uh, your buyers, right? Because ultimately, in China, they are subsidizing all these things. In East Asia, they're giving them all cheaper uh, and with more certainty. So why should people come to India if your land is difficult to acquire, if labor is difficult to hire, if finance is difficult to get, your power tariffs are too high, um, your rail tariffs are too high. So how is it competitive? Because ultimately, investor can go to anywhere in East Asia where all of these things are cheaper. So I think all of these things need a concerted structural reform to make India competitive. And we can always say, make in India, Atmanirbhar, we shut out the outside world and protect our industries and just make things for our big Indian market. But that will be exactly like pre-1991. Maybe a lot of you were not around before 1991, but you'll have the inefficient, uh, low quality goods, which you'll be waiting for for months to get. You have to wait for months to get a phone, months to get a scooter. And we don't want that kind of make in India. We want to make in India, which is cost competitive, which is efficient, which can sell in the world. So it's not only about make in India, it's make in India for the world. And these structural reforms, if we do it, we will make an India for India, but we'll also make an India for the world. I think that has to be our ambition. India's economy is $2.7 trillion. The global merchandise trade market is $19 trillion. That much, six times more than the size of India's economy. Just the merchandise goods, not even talking about services. That's, and we only have 1.7% share. China has about 14. The US has about 10. So I think the potential to capture a much bigger share is there. But unless you do the entire reform, it's not going to happen. Because also you have to remember that industry, global industry, the way it's structured today, it's in value chains, global value chains, regional value chains. You have to import a little, you have to export a little, you have to be integrated. But for that, you need to be as competitive in your uh, policy infrastructure as uh, you know, other, other countries are. Now, I think the question which I always ask is, we do all these structural reforms well. Um, there's nothing, nothing radical about it. Uh, East Asian countries, China, have figured this out and implemented them 25, 30 years ago. So why, don't, why doesn't it happen in India? That really is the question. So one, of course, hope is that during a crisis with our backs to the wall, with no other option, we'll do some reforms like we've done uh, in this round of... Uh, in this COVID uh, situation. But I think to make it sustainable, you, don't, you really need a constituency for this kind of reform. But I think ultimately, political economy policy is driven by uh, interests. And if you don't have large enough interests batting for free markets, uh, you'll never get sustained reform on in that direction. So I think if you look at the Indian picture, there's no political party which is uh, a classical free market party in any sense of the word, right? They're all uh, some version of, uh, in terms of economic version of center-left, nationalist, whatever, but there's nobody who's openly batting for free markets. The bureaucracy as well, uh, the structure was inherited from the British and the entire structure is based on control, uh, not enablement. Uh, what government needs to do is enable the private players. This system is totally trained for control, so that's there. Uh, that's a reality. And then there are vested interests and in everything, the current system serves certain interests well. So APMC in agriculture serves the interests of certain wholesalers. Uh, similarly, restrictions on banking serve the interest of certain uh, people already in banking or those who already have access to finance who don't want competition. So there's always in any system which is closed, there'll be a vested interest which will build in to maintain the status quo. Now what a crisis does, and that's why I say it's a moment for reform, is that it, the vested interest voice gets somewhat subdued uh, because everyone is in so much trouble. Everyone is screaming so that one voice which, was, which would protest normally if you do a reform goes a little softer than, uh, than before. So I think that sense, the crisis crushes the vested interest, not crushes, but masks or makes their voice less heard uh, and therefore provides an opportunity for a government if it wants to do something to take on vested interest. But in the longer term, you really need a political economy and need constituencies which support this kind of thing. I mean, people need to get behind this kind of reform and believe that it's the right thing to do uh, for India and for the, for, for, for the economy. Now, I think the only free market party we had in India was Swatantrata. Presumably, this forum is uh, well aware of a Swatantra party uh, back in the 50s, 60s, 70s. And in fact, it's, if you go back to some of the parliamentary debates of that time, some very, very nice voices on the free market, which we don't actually have in parliament at all now, that were there at that particular time. But I think, again, what happened at that time was that 
the party itself was a coalition of sort of princes, landed interests, uh, people who were widely perceived by the India's people at large as having unearned money, or, you know, people who didn't really make it on their own, they inherited their riches. So their politics didn't have that legitimacy. And I think that part of the problem of the market in India is its legitimacy. And it's true, a business, private sector has had a role to play in this. There are plenty of bad egg examples, you know, people who borrowed from banks and not paid it back, but continue to live their luxurious lifestyles in other parts of the world. So the private sector has set certain bad examples, uh, but the and, and therefore the entire political economy tends to look at profit and the private se sector and markets with a degree of suspicion. Uh, but that needs to change. And I think there are enough examples of very good entrepreneurship, whether it's the IT sector, which came up in the 80s, or the pharma sector, or now we have a huge startup ecosystem, one of the largest in the world. A lot of these people are coming up without any connections, without giving bribes. They have nothing to do with the government. And I think we need to get behind these people, and these people need to get behind us. Because we need to create a constituency for genuine free market reform, which some of the older businesses are unlikely to do, because again, their vested interest is in poor. Now that they've established themselves, uh, you know, they, certain amount of restriction always helps. Uh, therefore, I think industry never wholeheartedly backs for free market reform. Some do, but not as a whole, will, doesn't back for free market reform. Uh, and uh, as I said, a lot of us ordinary Indians, because of the perceptions we have about business and the bad eggs, we don't believe you know, that freeing up things is particularly good either. We, of course, forget that the government hasn't done us any great favors either and that the government is even more inefficient and corrupt than uh, a lot of the private sector is and the kind scale of uh, corruption and leakage in the government system. Though that, again, a lot of leakage has been addressed by this prime minister. Uh, so, uh, uh, but, but still, I think uh, there's, a, there's a huge perception problem. So I think the project that all of us need to work on really, and I would really urge you all to think about is how do we build a popular constituency for this kind of structural reform on land, labor, capital market, PSU, power tariffs, rail tariffs, whatever it is. Uh, why should we always rely only on a crisis? So this crisis, sure, has given us an opportunity to push forward two, three reforms. But we should come out and loudly and strongly support these reforms so that the government is emboldened and believes that there are votes and there are constituencies, particularly the younger Indians, I think, who haven't seen that old pre-1991 era should definitely back much more strongly for uh, structural reform because ultimately governments and politicians will implement a certain strategy only if they believe it will get votes uh, and I think uh, structural reform challenge for all of us is to get votes for structural reform and to create constituencies and I think at the same time you cannot forget that India is still a low to $2,000 per capita income country it's not a rich country there will be a lot of poor people so we have to support also a clean uh, transparent cash transfer type of system which would take care of the basic needs of the poor. Right now, there's 100 schemes, 200 schemes, uh, some of which work okay, some of which work badly, but as your migrant crisis just showed, it doesn't work when, it most, when it's most required. So government is, unfortunately, when it's most needed, when things are actually uh, shut down, there's a complete standstill in the market, that's when the government needs to step in, and then you see that its capacity is not there. So I think, I mean, that ground up by saying that Structural reforms, you've got some with COVID. I've outlined four or five others, which we need to follow up with very, very quickly. Because, you know, we can keep waiting for India's time to come, but time will just pass us by as it has in the past. And no, time doesn't wait for anybody. And let me also tell you that there's no, there's no such thing as destiny, that India is destined to be a prosperous or rich country. There are a lot of examples from history. You look at countries in Africa, you look at countries in Latin America, which have actually regressed, gone backwards. So it's... It's very important to keep the momentum going and to have the right kind of reforms. In India, we've been lucky more or less over the last 30 years that most reforms have progressed, even if slowly, at least in the right direction. But now I think it's a time when they really need to speed up because we don't have all the time in the world. You know, Our population is young now. We have a demographic dividend now, but in 10, 15 years, it will be gone. So I think what we need is this kind of structural reform. Trust the markets. Let the government do its cash transfer. Let it focus on a few things which it needs to do, whether it's law and order or roads or education, just a few things. It doesn't need to, even in education, it doesn't need to do higher education. It just has to go into a smaller space and be efficient in that space. The government also must follow market principles. That's my firm belief. Same market principles of competition, accountability, uh, 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 transparency. These are very important. Uh, these, was what make the, these, these are what make markets work and this is what makes government work 
well as well. And I think to Mr. Modi's credit, he has tried to impose some of these conditions on the government. There's much more competition. There's much more transparency. So things are on the whole working better in government, but government is still trying to do far too much in India. It needs to trust us more and we need to trust markets and prices a lot more. Thank you. Hey, thank you so much, Anna. It's actually um, very, very informative. Um, and um, I will go with, I have my own questions, couple of it, and um, then we will go with the participants' uh, questions. Um, so uh, I think recently one of your articles, you actually mentioned all successful countries have um, uh, effective uh, governments and efficient market. I would like to ask, what does it mean exactly um, effective uh, government means? Is it a limited or is it a big one? Or uh, what kind of role it serves when, when we say it's effective government? So I think, again, sometimes we uh, obsess about size of government. I think it's, it's not so much about size, but it's quality. For example, I'll tell you, in India, uh, as I said, there are certain basic things the government needs to do, law and order. Look, look at our police systems. Look at our judicial systems. They are understaffed, broken, delayed. Now, any you can't say that these need to be smaller. I mean, in the sense of they should have lesser people. They are already too few people. So you may need more people, but at the same time, the system needs to work. So I think it's not it's not always a case of cutting down, cutting down. On the other hand, yes, certain things they, we have far too many ministries. We have some seventy ministries, whereas most countries' major economies have fifteen or twenty at most, maximum. So I think. There's some parts of the government which need to be beefed up, which are which are in the key areas like judiciary and police. No government, no system can do without efficient police or judiciary. So we need to beef up those. And in other areas, whether it's running PSUs or you know uh, certain other unnecessary uh, things the government gets into, uh, those need to be or, or even in terms of administration, do you need so many uh, ministries? As I said, but do you need so many professional civil servants? You need you can have lateral entrance, right? After all, you can have a core civil service, but you can get people from the outside. India has experts in every field. Uh, you don't need to have a permanent bloated government machinery, which has job security for life and incentive to do nothing, right? So I think it's about getting the incentives right, uh, getting the right people there. And size has to depend on uh, the sector. So some in India, you need to get out of some things and you need to beef up certain things. But efficient government ultimately has to deliver its basic uh, requirements, whether it's judiciary or law and order, uh, these are non-negotiable, right? So economic policy, macroeconomic policy, central banking, these are things which governments do everywhere in the world. And you need the right people to do that. Okay. okay. And my second question uh, goes on um, cronyism. One of the biggest critics um, of the markets, especially in India, is actually cronyism. And... Um, large number of young people, especially young people, actually believe that cronyism is actually is same as market economy. So there is actually clear difference between cronyism and market. So how do you, do you see how, how much, how it is actually different and how we can actually um, uh, fight the cronyism? You can put it like um, how it works as a pro-market versus a pro-business. Cronyism is what you get when you partially openly liberalize the economy, which is what India did. So you allow private sector to come in, but government still retains a lot of control. So in India, again, where do you see, where do you see the cronyism? You saw it in all the sectors where government had some interface, whether it was telecom giving spectrum, whether it's giving some mines, uh, whether it's uh, building highways, other big infrastructure products. So wherever there's, an, there's a connect, closed interface between government and private entrepreneurs, there's a risk, right? Whereas on the other hand, if you look at IT services or you look at pharma, or you look at startups, uh, there you can't really accuse too many people of cronyism because they've had nothing to do with government. The government policy only didn't exist, which was probably a good thing. So they, they managed to grow. So I think the solution to cronyism, I think to some extent, every country also goes through this phase, whether it's China or South Korea or even the US, UK earlier time. I think every country goes through this phase in its evolution as a market economy. But the only solution in the end, you know, how many people you punish or put in jail? Sure, if people have done illegal things, they need to be punished, which itself in India doesn't happen because of our judicial system is not fast enough. It takes too long. Uh, but ultimately, the only solution is to reduce government discretion, right? Have an economy where bureaucrats and politicians have less power to decide who gets what. 
because as long as politicians have the power uh, or bureaucrats have the power to decide who's getting what, you'll always have some people who will be closer than others and that's when you'll get cronyism. And of course, there may be a, some amount of cronies who do a very good job and efficient job of running their business, but a lot of them you'll find will uh, run their businesses into the ground uh, and you know eventually decamp a lot of government money. The only point of caution I would uh, put here is that not every failed business is a crony business. So, so I think while we're also talking about market economy and free markets, we also must recognize that there's an element of failure in it. So some businesses will genuinely fail, uh, not because somebody stole money or because they did something illegal. It's just that they had an idea. It didn't work. It didn't succeed. A lot of the finest entrepreneurs in the world come up, you know, after two failures to make their third venture a big success. So I think uh, in India, the problem is that uh, we all of these are conflated with the with the result that uh, the cronies still prosper and get away. The good people uh, don't get enough loans uh, because, you know, there's a fear of failure. Uh, and, you know, banks or bureaucrats are scared that even if they make a genuine bona fide decision, if a business fails, they'll be blamed. So I think it's a vicious cycle which we need to get out of. Uh, sure, there's, and the only way to get out of it, as I said, is make things less discretionary. Now we have a bankruptcy code and so on, which can solve failures much better than any system did before that. That was another irony of our 1991 reforms that we allowed entry of firms, but we didn't, we didn't have any provision for exit. Because exit is a very important part, as I said, of free markets. There will be failures and we need to recognize, you know, bona fide, honest failures. Let's not uh, con combine them with those who are cooks. Uh, so it's a, it's, a, it's a complicated problem. I'm not saying it's easy for people to differentiate who's the crook and who had an honest business failure and who had the contact in government and who had the contact in the bank. It's a complicated situation and we are going through a process of cleansing at this point of time. But I think at some point we need to rebuild the trust and uh, entrepreneurs will need to be trusted, which is why, again, I said we need a large constituency of un the entrepreneurs who have grown without government support, of youngsters who've made their careers without government support. We need this constituency to push the right kind of reforms because with the wrong kind of reforms or partial reforms, you'll get more cronyism, not less cronyism. Okay. Thank you, Anna. Um, next question. Ravi, are you there? Uh, yes, yes. Are you hearing me? Yes. Yes. Yeah. Good evening, sir. My question is that uh, there is a structural reform movement uh, from the center, but when it comes to state level, uh, take it as a Andhra Pradesh. Recently, they passed one uh, uh, policy. What is that? Is if company want to establish, they should take seventy percent, seventy-five percent of the locals as a employees. But this is this is completely um, not given a free hand to the companies. This is against uh, to the structural reforms and labor reforms. And uh, another uh, and, and another thing is that if these seventy-five percent people are not skillful, companies should train them. If company fail to train them, then government will come into the place and the government will give training to the seventy percent of the people. And final, companies companies should take these 70 percent people as a, uh, employees how this kind of uh, things going on state levels how then then what is the uh, use of uh, structural reforms so what is on the, what what modi government is anticipating yeah think, thank you one of the reasons i think we have to understand so obviously i completely disagree with this policy but i have to understand again the context in which such policies are being made i think in general there's a shortage of good quality jobs. So when it comes to state governments, they obviously, again, because they're elected by their people, they want to try and ensure that the good quality jobs go to their people, which is why you're trying to reserve. Uh, but this is all a expression of the fact that there aren't enough good quality jobs. So I think uh, when there aren't enough jobs going around, there's a temptation everywhere to take these kind of short-term measures, which, will, which won't serve it won't attract industry. I mean, if you force industry to meet these kind of requirements, nobody will come. So it's counterproductive in that sense. But I think, therefore, if you have a full structural reform in the center, and sure, some states may choose to do their own thing and not go along. But if in even half the states go along with a central push on reforms, there will be, you'll trigger a competition because if investment starts flowing into those 10 states which have actually done the reforms, 
and places which have done reforms, I mean, policies like 75% reservation will not get that investment. Then their own will, uh, population will uh, put pressure on them to get rid of such policies. So I think I think we need a certain momentum which we don't have. And all these are uh, symptoms of the fact that we don't have enough jobs and politicians trying to do something in the short term, quick fix to uh, get votes. But as I said, it won't work. And I think movement of labor, movement of people is absolutely key. And if you look at the US, the one you can criticize their system, praise their system, but the one thing which they have going for them is that their universities attract the best people from everywhere in the world. You know, uh, most Nobel Prizes are won by Americans, but if you look down the list in detail, they all have been immigrated from somewhere or the other. So America has grown on bringing the best talent of the world to its shores. And I think in India as well, uh, if any state wants to uh, really become prosperous, the opposite policy should be followed, that you try and get the best people from anywhere in India. You set up a university system, you set up a research system, you set up systems which attract the best brains, because ultimately it's that capital which will give you prosperity. So I think I would do the policy in reverse. Thank you so much, Anna. Um, the next Sorry, I'm just clarify, I'm not saying reserve for outsiders, but I mean, welcome. Okay. Um, the next question is from uh, Satya Narayana. Satya, can you go ahead? Hi, sir. Uh, to discuss uh, agricultural reforms, these are all on papers mainly because uh, there is a shortage of uh, labor uh, in agriculture and uh, also the food processing industries are not able to start by small entrepreneurs uh, because uh, I don't know, the government is uh, just uh, 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 just uh, giving advertisements on food processing, but it's not happening at large scale because most of the farmers ending up uh, throwing their uh, agricultural uh, agricultural products, uh, which are not marketed, into dump. Uh, can you please clarify on this? So, so I think agriculture is not a. I mean, in every country, again, as you grow and as you develop, agriculture share in GDP falls. So I think agriculture cannot support the number of people it's supporting today. I mean, uh, people uh, need to exit agriculture and food processing is one of the sectors which is allied to agriculture, which should grow a lot more. But again, as I said, if you don't have the right kind of supporting policies, because ultimately you process something, you have to have a market for it. You've got to sell it somewhere, right? You've got to have the infrastructure links, the road links, the rail links, affordable uh, warehousing. You've got to have that entire infrastructure, which is not there at all. So I think until that infrastructure comes and until you have the right kind of support for, because a lot of these companies in food processing would be in the MSME segment, uh, uh, they need the right kind of loans at the right prices. I think, as I said, the interest rates are too high in India. Uh, uh, big companies can still access cheaper money from outside, but smaller companies, which would be in the food processing sector, would not be able to access international markets. So they definitely need cheaper capital. So I think, again, it's a whole range of structural reforms. You, know, things, you can't just say things, that we want food processing and it will happen. You can't say I want companies to come from China and they'll come. Until you they see that what you're saying on paper is the reality, uh, investors are very, very conscious that they have to put their money right where on the ground. So they'll not do it unless they are convinced that the you know, entire ecosystem is there. And I don't think we have made many improvements in everything, including agriculture, but I don't think we still have that ecosystem yet. Okay. Um, the next question is from um, Dr. Ashish Bharadwaj. Do you think recent FDI press note will actually reduce the enthusiasm for Chinese investors towards Indian market? Are our startups ready to uh, ready for this ADAC policy reaction? So, I mean, I think this. I mean, if you ask me, uh, given that we have a huge, huge trade deficit with China, about sixty billion dollars a year. I mean, it's grown it was, 20 years ago, it was about 1 billion. Today, it's over 60 billion is our trade deficit. And we have very, compared to that deficit, the amount of investment that we have FDI from China, because FDI would cover for some of that deficit is very, very little. So in, in economic, purely economic terms, I would be in favor of Chinese uh, investment in India. But I would, I would like to see it in greenfield. Uh, I wouldn't like to see, uh, and I think that's where the press note uh, is relevant. I wouldn't like to see Chinese uh, capital taking over Indian assets which are distressed because of COVID. I don't think that's the kind of Chinese investment 
that one would like to see in India, which is what is the risk right now because China has a lot of money and our assets are obviously underpriced because of the way markets have tumbled after after the COVID crisis. So I think we should welcome Chinese investment in greenfield. Uh, uh, there's absolutely no harm in that, and because if they invest here, it'll create jobs here, uh, and uh, otherwise we're just importing directly from China and creating jobs in China. So I think in greenfield definitely, but I think this specific note you're referring to is to make sure that in this short-term crisis, assets are not bought for uh, bought cheaply. And I think a lot of countries are doing it. It's not only India, Australia, the US. Everyone is watching out for you know distress. Uh, takeover of assets. So I think that's fair enough. But I think, again, let's focus on this plenty of potential on in greenfield. And that's where we should get Chinese investment. Okay. okay. Thank you so much. Um, the next question is from Kamal. Kamal, can you go ahead? Uh, yeah. Thank you, sir. Thank you for a very comprehensive and uh, insightful uh, talk. Uh, so you have mentioned how uh, uh, I mean, there needs to be a constituency that asks for reforms and how after every crisis we reform, but in the long term, really, it has to come from the people, I mean, who have to demand it. And we see that uh, experts and uh, like, uh, I mean, beyond, uh, beyond uh, uh, politicians and bureaucrats, uh, if we see, we see experts and, and people in the policy space advocating for it, but we never see uh, young people on college campuses actually advocating for structural reforms, for example. Uh, do you think it's because we need we need uh, some kind of a revamp in the way we do economic training in our country? Uh, because a lot of the curriculum, a lot of the training that goes in uh, is really outdated and somehow while the economy has sort of progressed and we are in 2020, our, our curriculum and the economic training that people get and, and the same people go into the, the bureaucracy uh, and, and media and shape public discourse, uh, a lot of it is still stuck in the pre-1991 era. Uh, so do you think this is something that also needs to be looked at when we are sort of aspiring uh, to be the kind of economy that we want to be? Thank you. I think, Kamal, you've hit the nail on the head. Uh, I only remember I was in Delhi University as an undergraduate in the late 90s. And uh, we were studying up one of our papers, 100 marks out of 800 was on economic systems. and that particular paper was 100% on the Soviet Union and the Eastern European communist economies and so on. And this was a good six, seven years after all those economies had collapsed and had become market economies in their own way. In India, 10 years later, we were still studying that old Soviet system. I'm sure it's not like that now, but I think you're absolutely right. We are behind the times on our economics training. Uh, and absolutely true that the places where our bureaucrats study, where our judges study, uh, a lot of them are taught very old-fashioned, outdated economics. Uh, and ultimately, that is what influences them, what is, and that's what they carry with them. So I think in terms of curriculum, uh, or even in terms of, uh, so in colleges, of course, but for all these other professions like IAS and judiciary, I think there should definitely be mid-career uh, uh, modules or you know, training opportunities where, where, the, where they can get updated. So the, so the problem with India, again, IAS, for example, you take an exam when you're in your 20s, early 20s, and then you're in it for life, right? So I think, again, you get trained at, you know, the academy at that time, but things change, right? Things change a lot. In, uh, and now I think with the next industrial revolution and all things will change even faster. Uh, and I think people's trainings and people's mindsets and people's education needs to change with the time. So I think we are far too behind. And I completely agree with you that, you know, need to completely revamp the way economics is taught. Uh, and, you know, uh, ultimately, how will you get convinced about whether markets are good or not? You have to start from first principles. And if you don't, if you haven't, if your first principles have taught you that markets are bad, then you will somehow in your mind always have it, uh, you know, no matter what job you do. Okay. Thank you. Um, the next question is from Arpit. Arpit? Yeah. Hello. Yeah. Yes, sir. Yes, uh, like I do understand that like global supply chains will be driven by market forces, but there is always a temptation to shift out of China. So how can we attract uh, some of the greenfield investments, uh, unlike the FDI inflows, which are more volatile in nature? And like, as you said that we have to try to reduce uh, discretion as less as possible, but somebody has to take the shot. And when they do make decisions, and if that firms like ends up making even profits or losses, 
they are held accountable for that even after their retirement so when we actually try to incentivize making no decision then how do they actually uh, like should the government hold their back or provide some kind of uh, backing to them and we are seeing that like stock market indices are like performing well even though different economic uh, indicators are not doing well so could you explain this uh, irony and on the hand side like uh, it's a pleasure to meet dhira sir i was uh, watching him from uh, a show called change india he used to hold with raghav bell sir then uh, i think 6 years back so thanks to technology and satantata uh, i got a chance to speak to him that thank you no thank you thank you very much thank you for remembering that change india so as you can see some of us have been trying for years to bat for structural reform and for market economy and so on but i think we can't give up the good fight i mean things change slowly but if people like us also give up then there's 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 no hope right so you have to keep fighting keep doing your bit attend webinars ask questions ask difficult questions i think that's that's definitely part of it so again from as far as your first question on the chinese investment greenfield again as it's the same thing if you don't the chinese investor has a choice whether to invest in his country or come here and if he finds he'll make a cold calculation on the rate of return that he'll get on his investment and if india is underperformed there's no way uh, he'll put his money here if anything if he has to if he finds china is getting expensive he'll go to vietnam or thailand or cambodia or somewhere else so i think we have to make our policy framework competitive there's no substitute for to uh, you know to that in terms of stock market yeah I, i it's always difficult to understand uh, the stock market so some people will say that stock market is more forward looking so maybe the stock market thinks things will improve uh, faster than we think than a lot of people on the real you know on 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 ground so uh, and that is one of the things i think second thing is that indians in recent years you would have seen a much greater fall in the indian stock market if this situation had arrived uh, 15 years ago i think what has changed is that earlier what you called the volatile fii flows they used to boost the stock market but in recent years a lot of retail investors and domestic institutional investors have put their money into the stock market so now even during this covid crisis the fii's have actually exited in very large numbers but what is sustaining this level uh, which is not bad for the situation is the domestic institutional investors and the retail investors and i think that's a good thing because again indians traditionally tend to invest in gold or real estate and not in uh, equities uh, but i think if more people are investing in equities it's better because those are more productive investments so i think what's holding up the market at this point is that change because i think if this was 10 years ago 15 years ago i would have seen i would have expected it to fall a lot more than it has okay okay i have a last one question and before close it um a personal question is um i have been in abroad i mean um i was living uh, for like 3 years so i have closely actually followed um politics of west um so there is a momentum global in terms of global politics towards more um nationalism more close border um uh, in terms of free trade there is a lot of regulations are coming up so because of these kind of um uh, a cultural tendency and global political uh, thinking how does this um rise of more um national orientation uh, on indian economy because india wants to grow at the scale that we aspire to grow we should actually able to um address the global needs for sure because then only we could able to actually um bring a i mean like a high scale growth rate for india and also um it can actually benefit our economy so how do you see what is that means to indian economy in coming years i think obviously you correctly picked that trend and uh, i don't see it reversing in uh, i mean who knows what will happen after covid because it's such a unique event but i suspect if anything it will lead, lead to more closed uh, instincts than opening up uh, instincts Uh, as far as most parts of the world are concerned but the point i made is that even if you assume that global trade will not be will not grow at the force it used to grow when china was taking off for example i think that's a reasonable assumption to make 
I don't think it's going to collapse into zero either. It's going to still remain. I don't think countries are going to stop stop trading. And as I said, nineteen trillion dollars is the global export merchandise market, and China has fourteen percent. So even and we have one point seven. So if we assume even that we double or triple our share, it'll be a huge. Uh, even if you go to four percent, uh, I'm not even talking about fourteen or ten, which the US is. Even if you go to four percent. Uh, It'll add very significantly to your growth and GDP. So I think, but the change is that in 2003, between 2003 and 8, when we grew at 9 or 10 percent, the best growth years for India. Those years, our exports grew without us having to do anything. So now that that will not happen. So we can't automatically expect that our exports will go up at any time soon. To get our exports up, we'll have to do all these structural reforms. There's going to be nothing automatic. You have to do a hard work. In 2003 to 8, if the global economy is moving. It lifts all the boats, you know. So if it was booming, we wouldn't have to do too much, and our exports would also do well. So I think we just have to work much harder uh, and be more determined if we want to, uh, to to prosper in this scenario. Because you're right, that trade scenario, the openness scenario, is not going to be what it was uh, for the last 20, 20, 25 years. But I don't think at the same time it's going to totally close up either. And I think in many ways, if we get our act together, we can actually become a leader in being open to the world. As I said. Opening to the world, attracting the best talent, attracting the best technology are only good things. Most countries have done well out of them. So if other countries want to close up, say in the West, then we should use that opportunity. Right? It's an opportunity for us. So every everything the other countries do are opportunity for us as well. I mean, you can you can cry about it that oh no, we can't export that as much as easily. But if we work hard and we change our systems, then we can take a leadership role as well. So I I always try and see what's the optimistic scenario. You know what what can we get out of Whatever situation we are in, because global situation we can't control, right? We can only control what uh, we can do over here. I still think there's plenty of opportunity, but it's not going to be automatic. It needs hard work. Um, thank you so much, Anna, for just joining us, and it's actually a wonderful session. And um, you want to say anything, last words uh, to our audience, and also you, this video is actually live live streaming, and you can say to the youth what they can actually how they needed to see a covid and also in terms of the future of indian economy so covid is a great disruption there's no doubt and it's causing all of us a lot of pain and discomfort in our different ways all of us whether we are rich or poor or middle class but out of every great disruption also comes opportunity uh, and i think in india what i've seen so far from the government's announcements and so on is that they want to seize the opportunity they've announced a few structural reforms i hope more will come and I, all i would urge uh, all of us is that we should continue this discussion we should continue these debates we must try and persuade uh, those who don't agree with us or those who don't have a view that you know this is the way that we'll become prosperous all of us uh, and markets are not anti poor markets doesn't mean that you're pro any business house or business it means you're pro markets are the most democratic it's like political freedom you know so like we celebrate our political freedom i want everyone to also celebrate start celebrating the prospect of economic freedom uh with of course we'll always take care of uh, those who have any disadvantage and we have to bring them up to the same level but ultimately only an efficient system uh, is going to deliver prosperity to all we've tried the other alternative and it hasn't i mean if the other system had to work by now no indian would be poor but it hasn't worked so give this a chance there are a lot of flaws which is why i'm saying we need a we need a strong constituency which backs for the right kind of reforms and the right kind of opening up with momentum so that after this we don't have to wait for the next crisis before we take our next five reforms now that we started let's do them in the next two or three years uh, that's what i would say and all of you have to be part of one person two people i mean i know we say prime minister can do it but prime minister also needs people to support him and to be enthusiastic about you know something for so it it has to be a collective exercise uh, and uh, with that we i'm 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 one optimist so i think uh, india will seize the opportunity especially if our younger generation gets behind uh, some of these reforms okay thank you so much anna for joining us and giving your valuable time and i was start to say one thing um, i used to watch the change india uh, video oh. before and um, i was started it when uh, one of the panels that uh, rago behel was organized um, i think 2004 or 13 or 14 yeah. 
and um, that was a wonderful actually initiative and um, many of organizations like us actually got inspiration from these kind of initiatives that uh, you guys actually did prior to us we would like to bring these ideas to the more young people more masses um, through different kind of uh, activities like this uh, online virtual sessions and sometimes um, boot camps sometimes we wanted to do as a residential camps where they actually can learn understand um, a different side of the kind where most of the indian didn't get a chance to learn about this kind of economic this side of the story in their schools so we would like to give an alternative approach um, then we can actually building i mean like a discussions debates i mean which works best then we can actually choose on on top of it and well, congratulate you and i think you're doing a very good job and i wish you all the best and any support you need from me i'm i'm always there to back you and don't underestimate the power of ideas and power of discussion uh, i know things move very slowly but i don't 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 uh, don't give up keep going but, Thank you so much, Anna. We would, we would, I mean, like always, like to work with you in in coming future and um, all of the participants who's actually joined. And thank you so much for your valuable time. We will actually see you next week with um, some great speaker and some great unconventional ideas that can actually build um, a free and prosperous India. Thank you so much. Have a good night. Thank you.